Blog Talk Radio. the Eastern Airlines Radio Show and the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. We share the stories and memories of pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern captain and producer of the show. We hope you will enjoy the stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time. And you will join in the conversation during the broadcast. Now let's get the show in the air. Reaper 19, you're clear to learn. Hey, Where? Runway 13 right, cliff takeoff. Seven vacations, how little they cost, how much they offer.
I uh, found a song that I thought we would use uh, in our future shows, maybe as a sign-off. Uh, our host listening now, give me your opinion after you hear it. Here we go. It's alright, it's okay, doesn't really matter if you're old and gray. It's alright, I say it's okay, listen to what I say. It's alright, doing fine, doesn't really matter if the sun don't shine. It's alright, I say it's okay, we're getting to the end of the day. I take low tech, take your pick, cause you can't teach an old dog a brand new trick. Everybody thinks that you passed your prime It's alright, it's okay You still got plenty to say It's alright, it's okay Doesn't really matter if you're old and gray It's alright, it's okay Well, that's a little teaser, Don what do you think of the song, Don? Uh, great song, Miss Producer. I hope we can hear that on Monday night. Yeah, I like Our it. Our stories too. range today from the sounds of the aircraft you just heard starting up, or simply stated from the mail wings to the huge Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, a.k.a. the Whisper Liner. As we like to tell all our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time and click the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you'll be given the message that the show has not begun. Many just call in to the show at 213-816- one six one one. This will put you on the producers board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join in the discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That'll tell the producer to unmute your phone's microphone, then just join in the fun. Now you can choose to listen and talk to with our host. Now we're going to go up to Long Island, New York. Captain Mike Scott, are you there? I'm here, Don. Uh, yeah, now let's sit back and enjoy some great aviation stories, as our producer said. Stories written by pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. Stories printed in the Repartee and other publications. Now, Eastern uh, Manager Don Gagnon, can we remind our listeners the great stories that they can still hear? that we did on the last show by going to the radio show's uh, archive on the website, which is www.ealradioshow.com. Yeah, we sure can, Mike. In our last episode, we shared repartee stories about Mr. P.O. Clemens, who many of us remember ran things in the Vero Beach, Florida, when Eastern served that city. And then the memories of Captain J.B. Armstrong, an early male pilot, with 37 as his seniority number. Boy, that's low. 
Jack mm-hmm. Lambie with many memories flying the DC-3. Remember, Jack was Dick Merrill's co-pilot during the first flight, first commercial flight across the Atlantic. Captain Jim, what have you got for today's story? Oh, thank you, Don. Today we continue sharing more stories of the men who flew the eastern skies. We start with a three-part series of some of these magnificent men in their flying machines, as the movie said. <laughs> Hey, Mr. Producer, can you find that music in your musical archives to play now? I bet you can. No, once again, you're right, Jim. I can't because I forgot to load it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) So you just have to remember how it goes. How does that sound? I can hum it now, but I won't do it. Good morning, Jim. (laughs) Okay, Tabletop Radio at your service. Our first (laughs) featured Eastern pilot is Captain Hassan Calloway. An Atlanta-based pilot until his questionable, and it's quite questionable, retirement at age 60 and years in a few months. Now, Mr. Producer, would you share part one, and may we also talk about Hanson's famous retirement dates? Yes to both, and I've got it loaded. Here comes number one of Hanson Calloway. As the editor of Repartee, the magazine for the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, I had the pleasure of interviewing Captain Hassan Calloway, and the interview goes like this. Flying is always the same old story, but some aviators tell it better than others do. In telling an aviation story, it should be just true enough to be interesting, but not true enough to be tiresome. While at the Sun and Fun Air Show this past year, 2001, a few Eastern pilots gathered around like young aviation neophytes during our student pilot days, listening to every word that came forth from our instructor's mouth. This day, our instructor was none other than the master storyteller himself, Captain Hassan Calloway. The stories that Hassan tells are stranger than both truth and fiction, but Hassan leaves little doubt that the latter is surely the case. It is said that there are three sides to every story, his, yours, and the truth. Hassan's stories are in a category all their own, and I have no doubt that he lived all of them. You may have heard a few of these if if you've been around Hassan much, but even so, You'll enjoy them again. Now, as the interviewer, as the editor, my question to Hassan started out this way. Hassan, why don't you start out as early as you can remember airplanes when you started in this long love affair with the airplane. The tape is on, and you have our attention. Hassan starts the interview. I was a little fellow when I started to build broomstick airplanes, probably when I was five or six years old. My daddy always wanted me to be a doctor, and he pushed me to take several courses in college along that line. But it would have been as if it had taken, if I had taken horse training, as it didn't turn out. I went to Oak Ridge Military Academy in North Carolina in 1936. An allowance of a dollar and a quarter a week was my spending money, but Coke and Hershey bars were only a nickel back then. I could manage to save enough, about $4, every month to go over to Greensboro 
and get 15 minutes in an airplane. Things went long and hard, and they, they really were. They really did. I've always been very fortunate. I mean, you can't determine the time when you get onto this earth, but you can extend the other end if you are a little bit careful. I've been trying to do that. My next question was, Hassan, so your flight training began in Greensboro. Hassan says, yeah, the guy who taught me flew an OX-5, Curtis Robin, and gave me four hours of flying. By the time I had six or seven hours in an unlicensed airplane, the big reality kicked in. It didn't do me any good as it was all illegal. I had to dig hard again to get my private license. I wasn't blessed with talent, but blessed with the clock of time. Everything came out just about right, though, as I got my private and my commercial certificates. About that time, the CPT came along, and the instructor certificate was hard to get, and once I had it, I went from a dollar and a quarter a week to $800 a month. That was big time. This was in 1939 and 40. I flew for a couple of operators and got some good experience instructing secondary acrobatics in a UPF Waco, which was a pretty nice airplane, except it took full hands to roll it to the right because it just wouldn't go around. It had a 220 Continental engine. Part of the curriculum was dual and solo cross-country for the students. We would go from Chattanooga to Knoxville to Nashville and back to Chattanooga. The instructor would ride the course with the student, and when it came time to solo, we were afraid to turn the guys loose with the airplanes, as there were not many airplanes available back in those days, and they were hard to get. The instructor would bootleg in the front cockpit. One cold Friday or February day, I had made two-thirds of a trip with a student. We were over Nashville going back to Chattanooga. It was a peculiar weather day where the ceiling was low, but the visibility was forever. You've seen those kind of days. The terrain just north of Chattanooga was mountainous, about 2,200 feet, and the clouds were right down on the mountains. In addition, maybe three or 400 feet, but I could see clear through. I wasn't supposed to be in the airplane at all. We were flying an F-2 Waco over a ridge coming up over a valley, where a half hour before or a half hour later, it would have been nothing to, it would be down to nothing to 300 feet. There again, luck was with me. I've been the luckiest guy in the whole world. We were flying over this valley when I looked down by my right foot, and there was this little flame coming up. I was fiercely on fire. I had always had this planned as how I was going to do this, get out on the wing, set the controls, cut the throttle off, look around for a nice place for the airplane to hit, and then jump out. It didn't happen. I ran right off over the tail. The airplane actually turned up knife edge and went straight in. It was completely gone when it hit the ground. I looked up and knew my student had gotten out and uh, as I was the only one there. He had already left the airplane. I had pulled the D-ring clear out. You were just supposed to pull a little bit, but I had yanked it completely out. 
I landed in some small wire bushes and close to a small dirt road. Now, walking up the road about half a mile, I came across an old Appalachian shack. There were old refrigerators out front on the porch and the hound dogs in the front yard. I went up and knocked on the door. An old gal, who looked like she was about 70, came out. She asked me what was the problem, and I told her my airplane had caught on fire and I had to jump out. She told me to come on in, as it was very cold outside. I went in, and I was sitting there. When out of the back room, Daisy May appears. Big, tall, and blonde. This girl, right out of Little Abner, had on a blouse that was cut so low that if it had been any lower, she would have been barefoot. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. She asked me if I was hurt, and I said, Oh, yes, I'm in terrible shape. This went on for a while when suddenly the front door opened and Paul Bunyan appeared. This guy was so big he had to turn sideways to get in the door. Of course, she belonged to him. Well, I mean to tell you, I got well real quick, right quick. He asked what he could do to help. I asked if he could take me someplace to a phone, which turned out to be about three miles away. After explaining to Babe Frame, my boss, I had uh, jumped out of the plane when it caught on fire and that the airplane had been totally destroyed. She asked if I was hurt, and I said, no. Babe sent Buck, her husband, over to get me, and it was only about 30 minutes from Chattanooga to Jasper, Tennessee, where I was, but I waited about three or four hours. I called Babe to ask what was taking Babe so long. She said he had left right after I called and was on his way over to Jasper, Georgia. But the story doesn't end there. The student wasn't hurt, and he made his way back, too. They replaced the airplane with a brand-new PT-19 Fairchild. A week later, I was in my area doing acrobatics and snap rolls again. I went around once kind of half-assed, and I told the fellow I was instructing to get his feet off the rudder. He said, Sir, I don't have my feet on the rudder. I told him again to get his feet off the rudder, and he said, My feet are on the floor. I looked down, and the left rudder was full forward. The little ear on the rudder that prevented your feet from sliding off was caught behind a piece of the structure near the lingeron and was full left rudder. The student asked, are we going to jump out? I said, no way. Fortunately, we were about 3,000 feet and near the airport, so with full right forward stick and using the power and aileron, I got it back on the ground. I did a magnificent ground loop. Here again, I was lucky. The airplane wasn't scratched at all. They put out a bulletin about this as there were several incidents of this very same thing happening down at Maxwell Field during training, and they had bailed out of those planes as well. I was making real good money, and I wanted to be an acrobatic pilot, but then started to thinking that the life expectancy wasn't all that good. So my new goal was to become an airline pilot. I went down to Dallas Aviation. End of part one. Jim? Yeah. Well, I like the way Hassan described the member of the opposite 
such gender. Daisy may have a little having the cartoon thing. I can conjure up some mind's eye exactly as Hanson described her. And long comes Paul Bunyan, quote, end quote. I'm pretty much seeing which way this thing's going. <laughs> I'm going out the door. <laughs> and Mr. Producer, do you have more of the interview that you did with Captain Holloway? Yeah, let's do part two. This is a good one, too. Hassan, since you jumped out of the airplane, uh, I guess you joined the Caterpillar Club. Uh, you had to jump out of an airplane to belong to the Caterpillar Club, I believe is the way it goes. Hassan's response, oh yes, I'm a member of the Caterpillar Club with that D-ring and the Caterpillar on the green background. I was only 1,500 feet when I jumped out. I, I didn't have a long ride down. I was over a valley, and if it had happened three or four minutes earlier, I would have never made it, as it would have been only 300 feet above the ground. I went to Dallas for a job promised to me by Pennsylvania Central Airlines. They were based in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I thought it would be nice to be based there, as this was my hometown. I went to Dallas and worked my way through the program, which was to be only about two to three weeks. I had the instructors rating, and they were grabbing for instructors, so they kept me there. I was there about six or seven weeks trying to get back to Knoxville, Tennessee, and see the chief pilot for the job with Pennsylvania Central Airlines. I was about halfway back in my 1940 Chevy, and listening to the radio about 1 o'clock in the morning when I heard that Pennsylvania Central had a DC-3 go off the runway up in Morgantown, West Virginia. I thought, oh, my God, that's not going to be good. And sure enough, the next morning when I went into the chief pilot's office, he said, Hassan, I'm sorry, but I can't hire you. We had an accident last night, but you're high on the list, and I'll hire you pretty soon. So here I was, out of a job and ideas. This turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me because if I had gone with them, I would have been hopping airlines for the rest of my life. Back in Knoxville, I went over to Delta, and a guy told me I ought to go down to Atlanta and see about a job. I told him that I didn't have any money, so he offered to give me a pass. I went down and got there at 8 o'clock in the morning and had an interview with a fellow named Captain George Cushing, great gentleman. He looked at my qualifications and was satisfied, telling me that he might have an opening in about two or three weeks. He said he would get in touch with me, but it was the same old story. This was the turning point in my life. A man never knows what incident or event and the time he will come to that fork in the road. This was coming up for me. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning, and the Delta airplane was leaving back for Knoxville about 1 o'clock that afternoon. Walking down or walking out from the old Delta hangar down to the old terminal, I saw a small sign that said Eastern Airlines. I thought I'd do some shadow boxing here. What did I have to lose? I went in, and P.O. Clemens was there. P.O., God bless his soul. He was the dispatcher, the baggage handler, everything in the world. Tobacco juice running down his chin. He said, what do you want, boy? I told him I was looking for someone who might be able to give me a job. He said, what do you do? I said, 
I'm a pilot. He said, you don't look like one. I said, that might be true. He told me to go up the steps and see Miss Bennett. Captain Past might be up there. I went up the dirty steps and into a hall where there were three small offices. Larry Paps on one end and Furman Stone on the other. And Miss Elsie Bennett. Not the prettiest lady in the world, but the most beautiful woman I ever saw in my life. She asked me what I wanted, and I told her I wanted to see someone about a job. She told me that Captain Paps was in, but that he was getting ready to leave on a flight from Miami and probably couldn't see me. He heard us talking and asked who it was, and she told him that it was a young man wanting to see about getting a job flying. He told her to send me on in. Larry Paps had a real sense of humor. When I walked in, I asked him, what it would take to be hired. He said, you have to be six foot two and stupid. And if you're real stupid, we'll waive the height. That's how I got my job. He told Miss Bennett to give me an application and a pass to go down to Miami for an appointment with Dr. Green to get a physical that afternoon. I flew down to Miami and Larry Paps as a captain and Rusty Hurd, the co-pilot, I can't recall who the steward was. Later, uh, I would have known, but not now. Paul Foster was waiting for me about 10 o'clock that night to check me out in the DC-3. It looked like the Empire State Building to me. I had never seen an airplane that big. This was October 20th, 1941. We made three trips around the field, and I felt useless. But he gave me the manual, told me to read it while I was on a trip, the next day, I was scheduled to go to San Antonio with Captain Gene Brown. I didn't have any clothes, but the ones I had worn to Miami, I flew out to San Antonio, spent the night, came back the next day to find that I had been scheduled for another trip. I told him that I was getting pretty. I told him that I was getting pretty gamey, and that I had to go back home and get more clothes. P.O. let me go and told me to be back as soon as I could. I whizzed back to Knoxville, got my clothes, my old car, drove back, and started flying. I stayed at the old hangar hotel. Where else? About two weeks later, my mother got a telegram from Delta Airlines from Captain George Cushing. True to his word, George said that they had a job for me as a pilot and to report as soon as I could. At that time, Delta had five airplanes, two DC-3s, and two or three Lockheed Electras. I would have been about number 30 on their seniority list, but I have no regrets as I've had every opportunity and cashed in on quite a few of them. I've had a lot of experience on I had a lot of experience on the DC-3, both in business and commercial aviation. I know for a fact that I'll never die in a thunderstorm because I missed that chance back in 1947. I flew three years and three months when I checked out as captain. The end of part two. Mike? Okay, uh, and for all of our listeners, the Caterpillar Club is an informal association for people who have successfully use a parachute to bail out of a disabled aircraft. The authentic, authentic, 
10 (laughs) the authorization for it by a parachute maker applicants receive a membership certificate and a distinctive lapel pin the nationality of the person whose life was saved by the parachute and the ownership of the aircraft are not factors in determining the qualification for membership anybody who has saved or been saved has saved their life by using a parachute after uh, after bailing out of a disabled aircraft is eligible the requirement for the for the aircraft is is it is, is disabled naturally which excludes parachuting enthusiasts in the normal course of recreational jumping or those involved in military training jumps the airborne systems company of new york, uh, new jersey continues the tradition of certifying members and awarding pins to this day and why the name caterpillar you might wonder well here's the answer the name caterpillar club refers to the silk threads that made the original parachutes thus recognized as the the debt owed to the silkworm. Other people have taken a metaphor further by comparing the act of bailing out with that of a caterpillar letting itself down to earth by a silken thread. Another metaphor is that caterpillars have to climb out of their cocoons to escape. <laughs> and like I like the last one of the of the three the best. So Hassan certainly did earn his. Yeah. And uh when it comes to uh, an interesting uh, part of how Eastern hired back in the day, just find someone who knows someone who in management to sell yourself, uh, no, sell yourself to the person you're talking to. No stay nine test, nor no, don't call us, we'll call you calls. Although Delta did return a call with an offer for employment. And Mr. Producer, you have uh, one. More, and of what, of what I understand, this was a horrifying flight, but two good men in the cockpit of a fly, with flying skills over the strength of Mother Nature to tell this story. You're right, Captain Mike. Uh, yeah, this is part three, and uh, very interesting. I think you'll enjoy it. Continuing our interview with Captain Hassan Calloway, Hassan has just checked out as captain with Eastern Airlines. And the interview continues. Hassan. I thought I'd been discriminated against. I was flying a Douglas DST, which was a sleeper, called a sleeper, which I have some stories that I may get to later, down to Brownsville. I had a new co-pilot by the name of Tom Day, a nice young man right out of the service. Back then, the guys coming out of the service had to physically do the route check, and Johnny Payne had made it as far south as Corpus Christi, but had missed a connection. We were on our way back northbound from Brownsville, and I told John to get on, that we would do some paperwork to show he had gotten on in Brownsville. He had a full load, 21 people, and we had a full load, with 21 people and a baby in the front seat. We left Corpus around 3 o'clock that afternoon on a course of about 50 degrees up to Houston, about 45 or 50 minutes away. About halfway, I saw this line of stuff coming across and told the guys it was going to be interesting. I asked John if he had ever had flown instruments, and he said, No, not much, Captain. I said, I said, well, looks like you may have a little chance at it. 
We went into the stuff, and Tom did pretty well for a while. It was light, black, turbulence, and I, I thought if it got any more turbulent, I would take it. I worked up an estimate for Houston and tried to get it out on the old HF radios, broadcasting in the blind, but we never got any answer from Houston. It was heavy over Houston, so I thought that instead of letting down over Houston with the buildings around, I would go on over to Beaumont. I turned and took a course to Beaumont, which was about 40 minutes from Houston. It got heavier as we flew towards Beaumont, so I told Tom that we should uh, he should change seats. And Johnny Payne was in the jump seat, and I asked him to get in the right seat. Day got back in the jump seat, and Johnny came up. Well, it went from heavy to severe, and then it got worse. We got in some hail and broke the windshield and cut my eye, requiring seven, seven stitches. Bleeding all over the place, I told Johnny, I, th- I think I'm going to lose this son of a bitch. You better fly it. He was working the throttles, and I was trying to fly it. We went from 4,000 feet to 9,000 feet, and honest to God, at one time we were about 400 feet. The airplane about 70 degrees, gyro spilled at 70 degrees. Uh, the gyro had spilled and had done so numerous times. Instead of trying to set it with the resistance it had, I, I would just punch it where it was and try to stay on it. When I looked out and saw the ground at one time, I knew this was about it. Then all of a sudden, it threw us right out in front of this thing. I looked back, and there was this old green, bilious, boiling cloud. God, it was nasty. I pushed the power up on the engines. It indicated normally about 165, and we were around 130 on the speed. I looked around and asked if everything was still on, was still okay. Johnny asked why it wouldn't go any faster. It just wouldn't go. We only had about 50 gallons of fuel after having started with about 350 gallons. I said, oh, man, we're in trouble. I was glad to be out of that thing and wasn't nearly in as bad trouble as I was 10 minutes earlier. I said, let's turn southeast about 120 degrees and we'll find a good place on the beach and ditch the airplane. I had all intentions of doing exactly that when I came across a road that ran from Beaumont to Galveston. I had flown off course many times in this area and knew the roads. This was a plus. I ran the cars off the road flying so low, but knew there was an airport nearby this stretch of highway. When I spotted it and turned base leg, the old thunderstorm and I met about the same time. When I got it to the ramp, the winds were about 70 miles per hour and turned us around, setting dead still on the ramp. Going back to check the cabin, I had never seen such devastation in my life. One of the heavy food cases had gotten loose and had come from the rear all the way forward to where a guy was sitting and hit him cutting him so badly that it must have taken about 80 stitches to sew him up. The guy in the right rear seat said that his seat belt had come loose and he hit the gal in the next seat and busted his nose up pretty bad. There were all sorts of cuts and bruises among the passengers. The worst thing was that my stewardess 
Tim Miller was lying face down on the floor uh, in the back with every dish on top of her bleeding profusely. They took us uh, to the hospital and sewed me up. We had 21 people on the airplane, and 17 of them were there for various reasons. Tim was seriously hurt, and she had to have plastic surgery done. Out of that whole fiasco, there was not one sick person. The lady and the baby were still all right. Now, the reason it wouldn't go any faster was that the wing boots were all off, and it looked like the nose had been beaten with a ball-peen hammer. The fabric underneath the elevators was gone and some torn on the ailerons. The mechanics found a cracked motor mount, snapped wing bolts, but were able to patch it up so we could fly it to Miami after about two or three days there. Johnny Payne was the jump seat rider who became the co-pilot. Without him, I wouldn't have had the pleasure of being with you guys today. He saved my life. He had the determination to keep me going. I was about to give up, and he would say, Fly the son of a bitch, and we'll get through. End of part three. Well, talk about worse than severe. I guess that must have been one of the storms that takes you in and chews you up and then spits you out. Lucky indeed to have come through a system like that. And the DC-3 just shows you how tough those birds were. Yeah. Well, I hope you have more to follow in this great interview. Yeah, Mike, uh, it's going to be fun doing this series. We've got two more we'll present next week and the following week. And uh, each one are just as fascinated fascinated as uh, this one has been. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, interviewing uh, Captain Hassan Calloway, and some of the interview didn't make it to. Uh, uh, I left to cut, <laughs> as they would say in filming, <laughs> and on the yeah. uh, on the mm-hmm. editor's uh, floor. I couldn't put it in the magazine, and it was. Uh, I wish I had spent more time with Hassan interviewing him because he had so many stories that he would share with us down in Sun and Fun, where we did this interview and. Of course, I knew Hassan very well as I had flown co-pilot with him many, many times and had the pleasure of seeing and being with him and Sun and Fun just about every year. And Jim Holder, you did too, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I flew with Hassan. I, I, I don't even have to say maybe. It's a positive. I flew with Hanson Callaway more trips than any other captain on Eastern Airlines. I used to fly the West Coast. Uh, and he liked to fly the West Coast, and I did too. So we flew together an awful lot, and I have stories on that too. I think I've told the time where the autopilot was not working, and Hanson said, yeah. guess who's going to fly tonight? <laughs> <laughs> so I took off, and, man, I was trying to hold that thing at 350. You know, the swift wing wonders are not really stable up there, and I was going up and down, 100 up feet, all the way out there. I tried several times to engage it. Hassan was over there, had his supper, and now he's reading a magazine. And I'm flying <laughs> along somewhere over Texas, and God, that gum, it, it engaged. It engaged. And I hit the altitude hold, and it didn't engage. And Hassan looked up and saw I was 200 feet low or something, reached over and hit the slow speed trim. And, Mike, as you know, that kicks off the autopilot. I, yeah, <laughs> it off. 
He said, you got that thing on? And I said, yeah, and you turned it off. <laughs> and it did not come on all the way. So it, I, I had about a three-minute respite on a four-hour trip. Yeah, that's Hanson Callaway. I really love to fly with him. And I got all kinds of stories about Hanson. Yeah, you're talking about it. An easy guy to fly with. I remember one oh, of my yeah. first trips on the 727, and I checked out his co-pilot with uh, Hassan was the captain. We were going out, to, I guess, to Seattle or somewhere out toward uh, St. Louis, I guess. And uh, it was my leg, and, and uh, we took off, and he, he had some other activities uh, that he wanted me to fly the first leg as we left Atlanta. And we were climbing up, and here was this thunderstorm. I tell you, it was just humongous. And there was a hole in there. And it was, as most pilots now recognize those holes, we had a name for them, sucker holes. You remember that? Sucker holes. Sucker holes. Yeah. Yeah. And was it a sucker hole? But here I am. I'm in a jet airplane, and I know I can outfly that thunderstorm. And so I made a turn, and, and, and he, he was just kind of sitting there leisurely. And uh, he got on the phone and was talking to somebody, didn't know who. But at any rate, he looked up at me and and I was aiming straight for this sucker hole. He said, Neil, you ain't going to make it. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> and he continued this conversation. <laughs> and sure enough, we met. That thunderstorm and us met because that sucker hole closed. <laughs> it was climbing higher yeah. faster than we could ever think to climb. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. Oh, what a fascinating man he was to fly with. He was. He was. Yeah. So we're going to enjoy Hassan for the next uh, two weeks after today. Uh, it's interesting. I, I tell you what, the, the story itself ought to be made into a movie, I guess. I don't know how you would do it because Hassan did so many things. And you're going to see in the next coming two uh, parts that uh, we're going to play, you're going to see how many different things that Hassan did even after he left Eastern Airlines because he was the chief pilot for Georgia Tech. Uh, in Atlanta, and um, it's interesting what uh, the man did. So uh, stay tuned, and we're going to bring you more of Captain Hassan Calloway. A lot of fun. Anything on you guys' mind you want to talk about? Now's the time. Well, we we all talk about these uh, these captains that uh, that uh, show their experience when you're still green. Well, yeah. I had I had my share of it myself, you know, but. Uh, I was very lucky to uh, to have a bunch of guys that gave me the opportunities to get where I was as a as a kind of a guy flying small airplanes and jumping into the big ones right away. So I mean, I had guys that uh, would let me do a lot of flying, and then and then all of a sudden one day I get in the airplane and the uh, and the captain was sitting in the right seat and he says, well, "Okay, you take it from the left side," and I mm-hmm. I got a little sweaty over that one, but I yeah. got through it yeah. okay. <laughs> and you get the opportunities, uh, you get all that experience. Yeah. They spill it into your lap, and it, uh, it sticks with you forever. You get all of the uh, the nice uh, firsthand information, and some of them, uh, some of them were a little bit uh, on the lemony, lemony side, but uh, most of all of the ones I I got involved with, they they were all very helpful to me to get me to where I was. So I can't ever You're complain. Right. We can, yeah, yeah. Well, Mike, you also are familiar with the airplane that he jumped out of because you own one of those Wacos, don't you? Yeah, the F-2, I was going to say. It's, of course, the F-2, they made a lot. Mine was a UBF, uh, a UBF-2, uh, 
of course, they had the QCF and a few other ones. They were the, the ones that had the two seats in the front and one in the back. Yeah, that's the, that's yeah. what they're designated, as you probably know, as a as a uh, as an F model. It was a three seater. Yeah. Yeah, and it had the uh, Continental 220 engine on it too. I believe. Yeah, the, the, it didn't... the QCFs, the 1931 models, uh, the QCF2s were. Uh, they had 165 Continental on them, and then uh, they were later. Any time that they uh, decided to get fancy with them, they would put the the, the Continental 210, and then they modified it a little bit to make it a 220. But basically, it was the the same engine. And, yeah, uh, I think on QCFs they only made about 32 of, and the one uh, my airplane they only made 18 of. So, but there was okay. quite a few F models. Well, you know, you just reminded me of a story, and Jim, you probably had this happen to you also. But uh, you're right; uh, some of the captains that you flew with as co-pilot would, from time to time, let you have the left seat. And that happened with me in Atlanta. I went out, and I had a real good friend, Jack Howard. And uh, you remember him, don't you, Jim? Jack, Captain yeah. Jack. I used mm-hmm. to call him Smiling Jack. Good-looking guy. Yeah. He's got had one of those ribbon mustaches and, and right. just a handsome mm-hmm. guy. And, and I used to fly with Jack a lot. And one day we came to the airport. We were sitting out in the old airport terminal there out on the ramp. And uh, I got in to the cockpit and he, he was sitting in the right seat. And, uh, I was wondering where I was going to sit. I thought, well, somebody else was coming along. He said, no, you're going to, you're going to fly from that left seat over there. Well, that was great. That was really great because I had heard that some of the guys did that. And here I, it was happening to me. Well, mm-hmm. the funny part of the story is that the flight attendant came up and saw three stripes on my shoulders and four stripes on his. And so, of course, she turned to him and she said, Captain, uh, here's a problem that we're having back here. And what do you want to do about it? And he turned to me and he said, "Uh, Neil, he said, why don't you help the flight attendant out here with a decision on that? (laughs) (laughs) But but it got even funnier. Yeah, it got even funnier. We had an FAA guy that was dead eating. Now, he wasn't an FAA inspector, flight control type. He was a control, controller, center man, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he had put himself down on a jump seat. And, and of course, that wasn't going to work either, a three-striper flying in the left seat. So Jack mm-hmm. uh, said, I think you'll enjoy a first-class treatment. He said, we got a couple of seats in the first class, and I think you'll mm-hmm. be more comfortable back there. And, of course, he took the hint, and, and he had the first-class seat. So I flew all the yeah. way. I think I was flying to San Antonio. Atlanta, San Antonio. I used to fly that trip with Jack a lot. Matter of fact, he lived there, out there, and I forgot the name of the little town. And I spent the night with him a couple of times. He and his wife, and beautiful home overlooking all of downtown San Antonio at night. We had a few drinks that night, and, and uh, but uh, some interesting people that we flew with, and great guys, really great guys. Well, you know, I have a sort of similar story. Uh, Neil, if you might let me tell it. Yes, uh, sir. I was flying to the West Coast, as usual. That's what I always tried to do. And uh, I flew with Dick Dick Mitchell. I'm sure you remember Dick Mitchell. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I've got a story about him, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, anyhow, uh, one of the trips, you know, uh, I went out there, and there he is sitting at a right-hand seat. And 
Now, I had probably about 4,000 hours on the airplane, but it was all in the engineer's seat or the first officer's seat. And the 727 doesn't have uh, nose wheel steering for the co-pilot, the first officer. It's only on the captain's side. So I told him I didn't think I was qualified to do this. He said, it doesn't matter if you are or not, you're going to. And uh, (laughs) so I took the hint, (laughs) and I sat down, and everything looked completely different from over there. I mean, the windshield is different, and the bottles, everything. You know, you're used to reaching over here with, you know, and I said, yeah. God, a mighty dick, are you sure about this? The only thing good about the whole thing was it was clear as a bell all the way to California. And uh, <laughs> he said, okay. So uh, so he sucked at the, I said, okay, uh, four-engine start check. Now, I started being the captain, man. It didn't take me five minutes, and I was barking orders. And I'm sitting <laughs> <laughs> And we got down to starting the engines, and uh we did it like he normally did, except I'm doing what the captain normally does and all that. Flight attendant brought the papers up and uh, everything that shut the doors. The agent saluted. The thing he greeted the taxi <laughs> captain, yeah. And uh, I pushed the power up and and, uh, and 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 turned the nose wheel steering with my left hand and made about a 45 degree turn in about 10 seconds. It seemed like <laughs> I could hear the flight attendant banging against the door back there. Who's driving this thing up here? I was zigzagging all over the place trying to figure out that you got to use a little rudder pedal, which I knew about that, would turn this nose wheel. But I didn't think I had to really use that and really lead it into it. But by the time I got to the end of the runway, uh, I'd learned how to taxi there, but it was a wild ride for those flight attendants back there trying to do demonstration with me going from side from one end of the taxiway to the other side of the taxiway. By the time I got out there, I said, hell, I can do this. You know, it really made me feel better about wanting to fly captain, but that didn't happen for about another three, four years. Yeah. Well, you know, you brought up Dick Mitchell, and I got to tell this, I'll probably never tell it on the radio show. Since I'm thinking about Dick, I hadn't thought about him in years and years, but he had just gotten off a, a DC-8. He transferred back to Atlanta, and I guess they had a curtailment in flying up in New York, dc eight, mm-hmm. And uh, he'd come back on the 727 in Atlanta, and we had a trip. I had a trip with Dick, and it was that old triangle flight, you know, from Atlanta down to Tel- uh, Titusville, um, Melbourne, you know, that space-age corridor, we called it over to Houston, mm-hmm. Texas, and Huntsville, Alabama, and then back down. And this was the days of NASA sending all the astronauts up. And um, so we had a we had a couple of days doing that little old triangle there. And um, so the first landing he made, he took off, we took off, went down to Titusville. And that's a short runway. I don't know if you guys ever landed at Titusville, but uh, we had a short I landing. I did once. Yeah, and uh, Dick... Dick it was his first time uh, landing an airplane since the DC-8. So it's not a DC-8 anymore. It's a 727. So short feel. And I kind of was worried about whether he was going to be able to stop it before the end of the runway, short runway. And so he set it up, and I thought he was doing real well. He had that thing nailed down, bug, bug plus about two instead of bug plus ten. He was right on the bug. Now, the bug, folks is uh, a little margin before you stall the airplane. And you know what happens when you stall an airplane. It, it loses lift and it comes down mighty fast and hard because we were close to the runway. Now, here he was carrying it right on the bug. 
good short field landing technique, uh, aiming at the spot right on the right on the approach end of the runway, and he pulled the power a little bit too soon, and that son of a gun hit that runway like you would not believe. I mean, the mass didn't come out, but I don't know what in the world. And we went out, and he he said, "Now do a good inspection on this airplane when we got it." Got on the ground for the engineer, and the engineer and I both went around that airplane looking for, for structural damage on that airplane. So it was one of the hardest mm. landings I've ever uh, been in. And uh, mm. but that was Dick. Dick, he was a great guy, a good guy to fly with. He was. Now, yeah. I flew my very first trip on the 727. He was the captain. Of course, this was way before then. That was in '66. Don yeah. Steele was the co-pilot, and I was the engineer, and Dick was the captain. Yeah. Yep. Good stories, guys. Good stories. And uh, I'm enjoying this Thursday session. I'm sorry that, Don, uh, you're having to listen to all these war stories, Dorothy, and and uh, but, but they were well, fun. We, yeah, they were fun to do. But uh, mm-hmm. we've got we've got this uh, Hassan covered for the next two weeks. So let's um, let's have fun with this. And uh, I'm glad you guys stopped by and. And um, I guess that's all we got for today, unless you guys got any announcements. Dorothy, you have anything you want to talk about, about uh, Monday well, night show or future yeah. shows? Monday, right, the Monday night show coming up is the retirement over the history of commercial aviation. And then, of course, the following Thursday, we have the part two of Captain Hassan, and followed by the radio um, music dance band of the 80s that we plan to do and then of course we have part three of captain hassan for the reaper and then followed by air safety and bird strike so we have quite a few nice shows coming up and of course it's our website for anyone to go there and they can talk to a number of people all they have to do is click into their a friend that they want to be in touch with and uh, write them a little note and they'll be able to talk. So um, go up on the website and um, have a little fun with your friends. Back to you, Neil. Very good, Dorothy. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people call him Hassan. It's uh, Hassan, like H-A-S-S-E-N, Hassan, Hassan Calloway, but he spells it H-S-O-N. And fascinating guy. And uh, let's see, there's something else I wanted to say, but I forgot what it was. But um, the show, oh, yes, we're going to have a little bit more of Hassan in our next or our Monday broadcast because we're talking about retirement age. And I think uh, Jim and I will share a little bit of of Hassan's retirement uh, in that show if uh, Jim can make the show (laughs) Monday night. Yeah, I'm planning on being there. We'll hear about that. Hear about that retirement because uh, it was lied about his age, did he? Probably something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, you're right. <laughs> and uh, Jim knows how it how it uh, because I think Hassan told you the the real story, yeah, right, Jim? Atlanta Atlanta QB meeting uh, initiation. It was in '78. Uh, yeah. He uh, was supposed to retire in '77. This was '78. We were having initiation that night in QBs and we were watching it and, and, and of course Hanson, you know, we always sat around and talked to each other and and we got into his retirement thing really. Uh, you know, and I was 
sort of indirectly involved in that. And uh, and he knew that because I told don't him. Don't tell him. all the story now. We're going to uh, okay, it okay, night. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got it all down written out here. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to okay. have Hop Harrigan. Hop Harrigan land the airplane, and we're going to say goodbye after we hear Hop and a song. Let's see if Hop's standing by. Hop, you there? Let's see. I got to punch. <laughs>
Lessons. We love you, Easter. <laughs> You're right. Bye-bye. Bye.